Just a heads up in advance of listening to this latest podcast. Unfortunately, the sound quality hasn't lived up to our usual high standards of quality of sound. So please accept our apologies on that. In normal circumstances, we wouldn't have released it. However, I feel that the detail that Bob goes into in this podcast is well worth persevering with. So I hope you enjoyed the message and get some valuable takeaways from it. The crisis we are finding is not just in the UK, it's across Western Europe and North America. For whatever reason, and I don't think it's clear yet, post-COVID, there are less people in employment, more people choosing to work from home and do jobs associated with working from home. Work-life balance has changed. So there's a greater competition to get people that we want. And I think as a sector, the young generation particularly want a nine to five Monday to Friday job. And I'm afraid in hospitality, our busiest times are evenings, weekends and bank holidays. That's the nature of the business we're in. Welcome to Food Service Matters, where we bring you cutting edge conversations with industry leaders in the food service sector. I am your host, Patrick McDermott, the CEO of Digitally. And in each episode, my guest and I will delve into the key challenges and opportunities facing the food service industry, highlighting the latest trends and creating a dynamic space for discussions about the future of the sector. Join us as we explore the world of food service and discover the latest innovations and best practices that are shaping our sector. Welcome to Food Service Matters with me, Patrick McDermott. Our guest today is Bob Cotton, former head of the British Hospitality Association, now known as UK Hospitality, the leading trade body for representing all businesses within the UK hospitality sector. I'll be talking to Bob about his extensive experience in the industry and his thoughts on cost control and investing in staff. We'll discuss the importance of aligning industry solutions with government objectives and how this has the potential to solve current challenges. I'll also ask him for his opinion on sustainability and its links to profitability. So let's get started. So, Bob, very welcome to Food Service Matters and thank you for joining us. I'm delighted. Thank you very much for asking me. So, with your career uh, is wide spreading, uh, tell me, for those that might be as familiar with you, tell me, uh, give me an overview of your past. I think I was fortunate that I went to university and did a degree in hotel management, and I was the very first year of the very first degree in hotel management in this country at Surrey University, 1966. So it meant that when I left in 1970, and there were only 30 of us got a degree, I was a very rare commodity. I had a degree in hotel and catering management. And I think of my year, I was the only one that went into catering. So it made you even more rare. So it was fairly easy while I turned getting established and getting a job. So that was my background, was essentially going to university, getting a degree in hotel and catering administration at Surrey. And part of that four year degree course was spent as one year in industry, working with Gardner Merchant, 
on the Ford Motor Contract at Dagenham. So that gave me my real introduction to contract catering and industrial catering, as it was then called. And so that's why when I left university in 1970, that's where I went to work. I didn't want to go into hotels or restaurants. I was quite happy at that stage to go to contract catering. They worked five days a week, essentially eight till 4.30, which struck me as much more sensible than evenings and weekends in hotels and restaurants. So that's where I started off. I then was fortunate to work with three or four large companies from Ford Motor Company, then Chrysler, then British Leyland, then Inchcape Group and Hawker Siddeley, all big companies. And so I got experience of what I term large scale catering. Sometimes I worked for the caterer, i.e. garden merchant. A couple of the times I was actually the client at Chrysler, I was the food service manager, and we actually employed Bateman, that's the originators of Compass, and Garden Merchant were two of the caterers we employed, Aramark, in fact. So I was actually food service manager at Chrysler, responsible for feeding 30,000 employees aged 25. So very fortunate, thrown in at the deep end, and when I think back, I'm not sure what I did as a manager of the whole thing, but I can tell you it was a great experience and I learned an awful lot. And I suppose the little bit of luck I have, and you often have to think about luck in life and what changes you. One of my contracts at Chrysler was a company in Birmingham called Birmingham Parts. It made parts for the cars. And the contractor was Garden Merchant. And it went out of tender every three years. So we put it out for tender and who was the local regional director for Garden Merchant, but one Gary Hawkes. And they put up their tender, and in fact, I threw them out. I thought it was so useless, I dismissed them. But I obviously made some impression because some three years later, Gary and I resumed our contact and I became his assistant in 1979 and worked with him continuously from 1979 to 1998 when I left. And when I joined Garden Merchant in that year with Gary, our turnover was 60 million and we made 3 million profit that year. That's in 1979. And when we eventually did the MBO in what, 95, our turnover had grown to 1.5 billion and we were making as near as damn it 60 million. So I've seen that growth from 79 to 95. And that was an exciting period to be with Garden Merchant. Then the next two or three years, I was fortunate enough to be the communications director for Sodexo. But it was never the same once we were part of Sodexo because the power moved from the UK to Paris, going to Paris, reporting into Paris. Then I was mostly fortunate, out of the blue, I got a phone call from the incoming government at the time, the Blair government, to say they were looking for a tourism advisor, would I be interested? And I went along to DCMS and saw Chris Smith, who was the new Secretary of State at DCMS, and he says, we need a tourism advisor. And I remember saying to Chris, I really don't know much about tourism, but I do understand hospitality. And he says, well, no one else understands what it's about either, so you'll do very well. Perfect. So he employed me. So 
I was at DCMS for 18 months then as the government's tourism advisor. So I left essentially Sodexo, went to work at DCMS, and I had an arrangement where the industry paid half my salary and the government paid the other half. And so all the big players contributed to my salary. So my job was one, to write government policy for tourism and hospitality, but also to explain that policy to all the lead players in the industry and vice versa. If the industry had issues they were worried about and concerns about, I took that to government. Mm. So you worked both sides and got to know both sides. And I was happily doing that for 18 months, power without responsibility, I call it. I suppose my major job each week was, uh, well, the two major jobs you do there. One, if any PMQ parliamentary questions come up relating to tourism, they were given to me to write the draft to give to the minister. And secondly, if any new policies were coming out by any department, whether it was transport or employment or whatever, it was passed to me, was there an angle that might impact on the tourism and hospitality industry? So I put my input in. And I also created the first tourism policy that the government had ever had. And I have to say that was quite a shock because we worked on it for about 15 months and then we launched it in London to the whole industry and Chris Smith and I went along to launch it. And he said, oh, yes, you can help me launch. You can stand up in front of all these people and launch it, which was daunting, I found. And then after that, he said, well, you've done it in London. Now it needs to be taken to every region, but I'm too busy to do that. So you can now take it to all the regions, to which I did. So for the next three months, went around every region to outline to all the hotel, restaurateurs, caterers, tourism people, what the policy was. And it was all about wider access, social inclusion and sustainability, because those were the three buzzwords of Alistair Campbell. And it was essential in those days, he actually said to you, you can come up with any policy you like, as long as those three buzzwords are in it. Social inclusion, sustainability. Wider wider access, social inclusion and sustainability. Wider access means more and more people can actually access tourism and hospitality. Social inclusion means that no one's excluded from that. And sustainability is all about, you know, modern day sustainability, that whatever we do has to create a sustainable... And that was in their thinking process at that that time. Those were the key three phrases. Before it became the buzzword, as it is today. that was in 1999-2000. So um, once you learn the politics of these things, you keep that in mind. So almost every policy I came up with, you'd make sure that you wove those three things into it. And it got a tick. If it wasn't in there, Alistair Campbell wouldn't approve it. But, you know, these are the lessons you learn. Anyway, I I was merely doing this job for about 18 months. And um, I then got a phone call one day from a guy called Charles Allen at the time. I think he's currently Lord Allen now. Um, But Charles Allen, who was running Compass at the time, saying, look, we need someone to run the Trade Association, the British Hospitality Association, as is. We think you'll be ideal for it. I knew there was a vacancy, but I hadn't bothered applying for it. He said, look, we're not very keen on the people who have applied. Will you do it? And I said, well, I hadn't really thought about it. He said, come and have a chat to two or three of us. So I went and saw him and 
Gary Hawkes, a chap called Peter Taylor in Scotland, and they said, well, we want you to do it, and will you start next week? So I then started doing I joined the by the sounds of things, you had the groundwork done by by going around the UK and, for eighteen and months. To be fair, the government then said, "Look, we want you to carry on being our advisor, as well as running the trade association," mm-hmm. which was slightly tricky, but it actually worked very well because mm-hmm. it meant I had very close access into government, and I actually then had a regular meeting with whoever was the secretary of state, Chris Smith, and then. Um, I almost went through, um, Tessa Jow was the next one who I really liked enormously. And you sort of, um, one every two years almost, but, you, but they always treated me as their key advisor, even when I was running the BHA. Mm. And I then ran the BHA for 10 years to 2010. And I felt after 10 years, I've done my bit. And the fact that there was going to be a general election that year, and in fact, that was the one that Cameron won. And I have to say, to be fair, I spent six months. Um, the shadow Secretary of State at the time was uh, Jeremy Hunt, whom I got to know very well. And they actually asked, would I spend time working with Jeremy Hunt to teach him all about tourism and hospitality on the side, which I did do. So that stood me in very good stead. And so when, you know, when 2010 came, I decided that was an ideal time to hand over people in the half an hour lunch break, because that's all they had. And then you washed down afterwards, and by 2.30, you were finished for the day. So it was mass production, it was, get it out, and let's clean up. And it, was, and it was cheap food, wages were cheap. Two meals a day? One meal a day, essentially. One. And then, and then a night shift, big night shift as well. So dinner I, in the middle of the day. Dinner, exactly. That was it. Oh, and then big trolleys in the morning and afternoon. So you'd have hundreds of trolleys going out on the Dagenham Estate with filled rolls, and and tea, in these urns. So tea and filled rolls in the morning, lunch, tea and filled rolls in the afternoon. That was it. In those days, then within the kitchen and kitchen management, I'm always interested to know what way was. Uh, was uh, we mentioned sustainability? We uh, where did profitability come into it? Where did the training aspect come into it? It was all about cost control. Was it? So you knew precisely if you were making a gallon of tea in an urn, you know, it was about one and a quarter ounces on very precise measurements on everything. So if you had an A10 tin of beans, how many portions? A lump of cheese how many slices, a tin of ham, how many slices. Everything was down to the hayfany on cost control. So it was menu planning and cost control was the absolute basis of budgeting and making your money and making your gross profit, which of course is, you know, that was where Lord Forte made his money and learned his trade from that's how Forte started off. And that's why the whole ethos through Trust House Forte Garden Merchant was essentially menu planning, cost control, tight budgeting, because that's what the business is about. It's about cost control. And who taught you all this then on site? Because you went in as a chef. Oh, they had a, was this drilled into you? No, they actually had a training in those days. And that's where we've gone backwards. Even at Dagenham, on the Dagenham estate, there was a training centre, and each year there would be 40 apprentices in this central training centre, 
and you'd spend 14, 15 weeks there. And of that 14, 15 week program, you'd spend sort of six weeks in the kitchen, then two or three weeks doing food service. Then you'd spend two or three weeks learning the books. Then you'd be sent off to do relief management in a unit when someone was on holiday for a week before you were given your own unit. So they had a natural training school in 1970. Things have changed. Things have changed. And, you know, that's why they were so ahead of their game in many ways, because they did understand training, investing in people. But it was still, you know, relatively low pay. I remember my first job from university in 1970 working in the industry was what, £1,100 a year. Mm-hmm. But of course, £1,100 a year in those days, you actually could survive on. Yes. Because I, you know, I shared a flat in London and was able to do that on that amount of money. And so where has it all gone wrong, in your opinion, from 1970? And there, it sounds like you weren't working. You were, uh, when you started off, you were going through a training for 14 well, started, weeks. Well, that was the key thing, you know, that you, you, you went through training. You were trained. There was a philosophy that you had to train, particularly management, and supervisors and potential manage, train people. And I think where we've lost a lot, and I, and I, 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 I despair sometimes today when I see how little we are investing in people. I know it's a truism to say that we're a people business and it's all about people. But I can tell you, whether it's contract food service or whether it's hotels or whether it's restaurants, what makes the experience for the guest is the way he's treated by the staff. You know, you can have great food in the kitchen, chef can be producing great food, but if you don't have that right customer interface, it's ruined. Same with the hotel. You know, how you're treated when you check into the hotel at reception, how the cleaning staff and housekeeping staff interface with you. And if you stay in a hotel, and I've stayed in hundreds, you see more of the housekeeping staff than you do of the management. Yeah. You'll see someone from the cleaning department every day. They come to your room. Yes. You know, that's the interface. You've got to get that right. And that's what makes an experience memorable. And that's what, that's what persuades the guest to keep coming back to you is that great experience. And that's what is a profitable guest is a return guest. That's where you earn your money, whether it's a restaurant, a hotel, or whatever. And the thing I despair of is how little we are reinvesting in our workforce. I have to tell you, one of the jobs I did when I was at the BHA, the government were very concerned about how low our levels of productivity were in the industry. So they set up a thing called the Best Practice Forum, which I chaired got together a number of people and they gave us a grant of a couple of million pounds to do research, to study why was productivity low in our sector and how we compared with Germany and other countries. In, in summary, what we discovered, what we found was that the very best companies in this country compare with the best in the world. Let's just say the top 10%, very comparable with the best in Germany, the best in France, the best in America. The problem we had was we had a very long tail after the top 
and we were just not investing in people giving them training. You know, for example, you know, Germany was spending between one and four percent of its payroll on reinvesting in training, apprenticeship programs, and everything. And I think, you know, in Britain, it was like more like 0.1%. And I've always taken the view since that time, we should set a benchmark of 1% of your payroll should be reinvested in training and developing your staff, 1%. And that should be the target. And I've always said to government, I've tried to persuade government, industry won't do anything by itself. I've been around the block long enough to know that in good times, companies don't spend the money because they don't think they need to. And in bad times, they think they can't afford to. So they stick with what they're doing. And I said, look, we've got to actually change behavior. And the one method of changing behavior might be through the tax system. So if a company does spend 1% of its payroll on training and developing its staff, tick. If it spends more than 1%, let's give it a reduction of its national insurance bill. If it isn't spending 1% and it's less than 1%, let's penalise them and charge more on its national insurance, i.e. we've got to use the tax system to incentivise change because I've been around long enough to see that, you know, by osmosis, it doesn't happen. You've got to encourage people to do the right thing and penalise those for not doing. And at its most extreme, I go around London today and I see some of the most wonderful hotels going up. We've seen the Peninsula, we've seen Raffles. They're wonderful properties going up. I see restaurants spending five or six million pounds refitting a restaurant. Then when I look at what they're spending on training the staff to make these assets work, it's almost nothing. I remember the case a few years ago of going around a hotel and it was a roughly an 80 bed hotel and they were spending 75 million pounds just refurbishing the bedrooms, almost a million pounds a bedroom just on a refurb. I, I then asked what the training budget was. The training budget was under 100,000. And I said, look, you know, we're spending, capital is no object. You're spending millions and millions and millions on capital. But to make those assets actually work, it's the people that make the asset work. The proportion of spend is all wrong. And I think that is where we've gone wrong over the last 10, 15 years, where quite frankly, the cost of capital has been extraordinarily cheap. You know, you could borrow money at almost nil percent. And you see these wonderful hotels go up in London. You've never seen more luxury hotels. They are a great standard. You see luxury restaurants, dozens. Great sites in offices where, you know, contract caterers are providing some great services. But then when you look at what we're spending on the people to make those assets actually work, it's minuscule. And that's, you know, the, the, the balance is, is all wrong. That's where we specifically, I think, have gone wrong in the last 15 years. This balance between what we're spending on capital and what we're spending on, shall I call it, human capital.
Yes. And that has to be corrected. It really does. And quite frankly, it's not up to the government. I really get almost hacked off when I hear people moaning about why doesn't government do this? Why doesn't government do that? Government ought to change the training levy. Government's charging us for this, that, and the other. The responsibility when you run a business for your staff is yours. It's not government's. It's you. You have to invest in your people to make your business model work, not the government. I'm always reminded of you know that very famous phrase by Ronald Reagan. You know the ten most dangerous words in the English language. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> you know, quite frankly, in business you've got to look after yourself and take care of your own issues. And people are your biggest issue, so they should be at the forefront of everything. I say, I think we've got the balance wrong, in my humble opinion. So. I thought you were going to say the opposite there because when you, you came across uh, something, when you mentioned about the 1% to 4%, the reinvestment in people and in training, that if there was a system implemented, that if there was more than 1%, then this would happen. If there was less, then yeah. this could happen. Uh, you, How much of you, what you're saying here is uh, that the government can encourage a change in behaviour versus it's the personal you, responsibility you, you of the business the owner. What I'm saying is you can use the tax system mm -hmm. to sort of induce change. You know, I mean, that's one of the very few levers that government has. It has interest rates and it has tax. That's just about it. The rest is sort of hot air and encouragement. But one thing they can do, and, you know, we've seen it where, you know, when selective employment tax was brought in and then got rid of, you know, national insurance increases and decreases. You know, you can affect people's behaviour, particularly national insurance, because we are such a large, as it were, employer of people. So national insurance is very significant to our sector because we employ, what, two and a half million people. You know, so it's not like IT where you can employ very few people and have an enormous business or an oil rig in the North Sea now only has 20, 30 people on board, you know, we still employ hundreds of thousands, you know, compass, what, 550,000 worldwide, Sodexo, similar numbers, you know, so national insurance is a big issue. So you can use that as a means of um, encouraging people to do the right thing. So I think, I, I really do think we do need to do something because, as I say, from my experience, if you just leave it to the free market, in good times they don't think they need to, and in bad times they say they can't afford to. So that's what brings us to where we're at, where we have, is, is this the, the, the crisis that we have with people, uh, new entrants coming into the, the food, food service, hospitality sector, is this as a result of increased investment in the capital and not the people and taking them for granted? Yes. And what we're also seeing now, particularly in developed nations, because the crisis we're finding is not just in the UK, it's across Western Europe and North America. For whatever reason, and I don't think it's clear yet, post-COVID, 
first of all, less people to seem to want to work. There are less people in employment, more people choosing to work from home and do jobs associated with working from home. And work-life balance has changed. So there's a greater competition to get people that we want. And I think as a sector, you know, people, the young generation particularly, want a nine to five Monday to Friday job. And I'm afraid in hospitality, our busiest times are evenings, weekends and bank holidays. That's the nature of the business we're in. And yet the younger generation isn't very keen on working evenings or weekends or bank holidays. So we've got to find mechanisms to encourage the brightest and the best to join our sector. We've got to reward them appropriately and properly. Through pay and hours. Through pay and hours. Yeah. And then we've got to come up with a business model that works. Because you know, just using the current business model and adding sort of 20-30% to the wage bill, the model doesn't work. So we have to find a new business model reflecting where we find ourselves because there will always be demand for feeding at work, going out into a restaurant, staying in a nice hotel. But we've got to find the business model, the price structure, the business model that works and encompasses paying people properly and working correct shifts and recognizing that you know, if we really do want people to work on a Saturday and Sunday, we've got to give them Monday and Tuesday off, for example. So to get creative with rosters, pay them more. Um, and give them other benefits as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, all the things that you used to do with junior management when we had problems in the 70s getting junior management or middle management. You know, private health care. You know, what options can you come up with private health care? What about transport costs? What about busing people? You know, people working in London, should we be paying all their transport costs? Because you can't afford to live in London if you're on minimum wage. You're, tra- you're commuting in from Essex or wherever. Pay their transport costs. For it. All I'm saying is a whole range of things that we've got to explore to get the workforce we need then we've got to give them the training and the skills to do the job. And then most importantly of all, manage them properly so they don't leave us. Because in my experience in life, people leave people, not companies. If you're well managed and you have a high regard for your immediate boss, in the main, you stay where you are. If you're hacked off by your immediate boss and pissed off with him, quite frankly, you start looking elsewhere you may find another job which pays you more. And that's maybe the reason you give, I'm moving for money. But the real reason is you're hacked off by the way you've been treated and managed. So if you'll treat people well and manage them well, that is the biggest issue about keeping and retaining staff. And if you look at some of our retention levels in the sector, they are frightening. You know, how can you be running a business when you've got a hundred percent turnover amongst your staff, a profitable business, you know it takes several months to get any member of staff up to speed. Mm-hmm.
And so, I mean, how, how, have we got, how have we got to this stage that it seemed to be that after COVID that a lot of people went um, or disappeared and or didn't went, want to return? And didn't want to the, return. The attraction of more of a life uh, balance yeah. and appreciating their weekends, appreciating their evening hours because their we, businesses we, were closed. We were slow to recognise as an industry that the world had changed. So there were cracks. Yeah. evident cracks that were there. Yeah, but we were slow to react and recognise that, you know, all the people that used to work for us and we laid off because of COVID didn't immediately want to come back. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd learned to do other things. It's, it's no different to if you are refurbishing a hotel. The very worst thing you can do is close the hotel while you do the refurbishment because the guests find other hotels to stay at and perhaps have a nice experience. New habits. So new habits, so that when you reopen your hotel, surprise, surprise, all those old guests that you were counting on don't come back because they've had another experience. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened with COVID. People found other experiences during COVID. The world, you know, the world did change. And as I say, that's why this problem we now have is not just a UK problem. It's Western Europe, North America, you find exactly the same issues. The shortage of labor, less people in the workforce, people have made other choices, et cetera, et cetera. And we were slow to react and respond. And we have to respond by changing the business model. I mean, a whole range of things, you know, for instance, if you're, if you're running a restaurant, you know, these menus where you used to see sort of, you know, 20 starters and 50 main courses and God knows what else. You know, lunchtime, three starters, three main courses plus a vegetarian option and three sweets plus cheese. Keep it simple. Keep it simple, change it regularly, less wastage, customers are happy, etc., etc. Things like that. Chefs being more imaginative. You know, I always say to chefs, you know, one of the biggest problems is chefs get lazy. So they'll put on, you know, they'll put on steaks and chops and things like that. Stay comfortable. You know, flash them under the grill, put it out. You know, buy cheaper cuts of meat and add some value. Do something with it. Mm-hmm. That's what being a chef is all about. Mm-hmm. It's adding value to the materials that you, you buy in. Add some value and sell them. You mentioned earlier sustainability. Um, during your career, you would have seen different changes in that, both from starting as a as a chef in the industrial catering, mm-hmm. moving through then with Garden and Merchant, and also into the BHA yeah. side of things. Um, where has the role of sustainability sat along your journey? I have to say, it didn't really raise its head in what I term environmental sustainability. Yeah. I mean, it was always about what I term business sustainability in the early days that, you know, the, the mark was to stay in business. Yeah. And you did that by forming relationships with your customers and being profitable and all the rest of it. I think probably during the 90s, mid 90s, environmental sustainability started to come on board. and. I've always taken the view that there are two parts to what I term environmental sustainability. There's a slight leadership role you play 
in terms of about trying to encourage your staff to you know buy the right foodstuffs, you cook in the right way, you dispose of rubbish in the right way, and you try and encourage customers to make the right choices. But you've also got to bear in mind as well that you can't get too far ahead of customer expectations either. You know, because if you come up with something which you as the operator think is absolutely the right thing to do, but doesn't have buy-in from the customer, you're not going to have a business. So you can never get too far ahead of the customer. Having said that, you know, with what I term modern-day communications and what you read and what you see and what you hear, customer views have changed remarkably as well. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be able to move with the times as well. But you want to try and what I term move together, not be ahead of the customer, but not be behind the customer. You know, simple things like in a hotel about um, soaps, disposable products, plastics, whole range of things. You know, are are are, are the customers ready for disbanding individual toilet and soaps and whatever, and prepared to go for? A big container. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you get rid of plastics in places, uh, but is the customer ready for it? Mm-hmm. So you, you, it's it's a it's a fine line, but you 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 ideally work in tandem. But it's something that you've got to be much more aware of now. So it's a leadership role as uh, as a business leader, and then also uh, not getting too far ahead well, of the customer a expectations. Well, there's and a, a very strong what I term listening role. Okay. So it's leadership role with your staff, with your suppliers, with the society in which you're living, where you live, local issues. But also you want to have this sort of like a very acute ear to what is actually changing in the marketplace as well. And it's having that sensitivity and working. Reacting accordingly. Reacting accordingly. That's what I'm saying. It's not driving ahead in a blind way or it's not sort of having cloth ears and not doing anything. Yeah. So it's sustainability from the business as a whole being sustainable as regards financial viability as much as growth. That all has to come first. Yeah. Otherwise you won't be in business business. next year. I mean, I'm a pragmatist at the end of the day, and I know I used to have quite long arguments with the Labour government in the early days when they sort of used to try and suggest that we were rapacious employers and ripping off everyone and we had this rip off Britain campaign and all the rest of it. And I just have to try and explain to uh, the Chancellor and the powers that be at the time that no, the very, the most successful businesses form real partnerships with their customers and their employees. Mm -hmm. And they're the successful businesses. You're not ripping off your customer and you're not ripping off your staff. You actually form very deep partnerships with each of them and that's how you run a successful business you don't run a successful business but i can tell you if you habitually rip off your customers you will get found out very quickly if you ill treat your staff and rip them off you'll be found out very quickly if you don't work with your suppliers and pay your bills properly you'll be found out so it's a series of partnerships and that is always, I believe, the crux of a successful business. And that is first and foremost, 
these successful partnerships. And if you don't have that as the bedrock of both your business and your philosophy, you're not going to be able to move forward and do all the other nice things you want to do. So I'll bring you back to a point you said earlier when you mentioned there with the government and trying to persuade uh, people or the government to make change. We mentioned about the the investment yeah. and why has something like that not been put in well, in place? Well, I, I, I remember two examples of managing to persuade government to do things that they didn't think they were there to do. And I have to t- I have to explain to you, a lot of people who've never worked in government or not close to government don't really understand the role of government. Government isn't there to do that much, quite frankly, because, um, for example, when it comes to business, they're not there to prop up business. They're not there to keep business going. But the, the, you know they will step into businesses on a transitional basis. So if the mining industry needs to gradually scale down, they put money into the mining industry as it Trap it up goes through. Mm-hmm. The steel industry, they're doing the same thing. Whole range of industries, they put money in as a transition. They may occasionally put money in as an investment when it's a brand new industry like. IT. Mm. But in the main, that is not their role. Their role in the main is to invest in public services, hospitals, schools, infrastructure, so that we can actually, you know, so we can, you know, they're they're meant to educate people so we can get the right people from schools and colleges, provide a healthcare system that works so that your workforce is kept well. Uh, roads and transport systems that work so that people can get around. That is the role of government, not actually to run business or invest in business per se. Having said that, I had two occasions when I did go to government wearing my various hats to actually try and change that approach. And at both times I was successful because it was a matter of working at a plan and working at a strategy that actually met my requirement and the industry's requirement, but the government could see that it also met their objectives. The first one was post um, foot and mouth, where it was one of the major things I think I managed to achieve was, you know, all the work that we did through foot and mouth. But when we were coming out of foot and mouth, certainly hotels, restaurants, tourism was in a pretty bad way. And we had to somehow get the message across to both Britain and the world, that Britain was back in business, open for business. So I went to see um, the Chancellor, Gordon Brown, and uh, I explained the situation. He said, well, if you can get industry to come up with 15 million quid, that was the figure we agreed, I will put in 15 million quid, and you'll have 30 million quid, and you can run a marketing campaign to say Britain is open for business. And I said, well, I'll do my best, uh, but one of the conditions will be is that we industry would want to be running the marketing campaign. We wouldn't want a government agency to be running it, if you understand what I mean, because that would seem like a taxation giving money to government. Yeah. And he said, fine, go with that. So I then went back to my major players in the BHA, and that included P&O, British Airways, Hilton, Jarvis, 
all the big home, Marriott, Hilton, all the big hotel chains. I have to say people like Colin Marshall, who was running British Airways at the time, and John Jarvis running Jarvis Hotels. They all got together and they came up with a 15 million. The big boys put a million quid in, the smaller guys, 250,000, right down to smaller businesses putting in 100,000. Mm. Well, 1,000 rather. So we raised the 15 million, the government put in the 15 million, and we ran this campaign, and it was an enormous success. And we could see that the return on that, 50, on that investment was something like, you know, six to one. And it worked. That was one of the very few times I've managed to persuade the industry to work together. So that was that example. Another example was when we were having real employment problems. The government was having real employment problems of youth unemployment. There was a time when youth unemployment was running at almost 30%. And I went along to see Gordon Brown. And again, he said, look, you know, I said, look, one thing that you know we are good at in the hospitality industry is employing people. And we came up with a scheme with Tessa Jowell to find, get special funding to bring young people into the industry, give them training, which the government supported and gave us extra funding for. So I thought those were two good examples where, you know, if you can find areas of what I term government objectives, they will come supported. And that is always the key is, what is it you're trying to achieve as an industry? What are the players in industry saying that they need? But then you look at what is the government agenda and can, can you bring the two together? And as a member, one of the ministers said to me, look, anything to do with tourism and hospitality, how on earth do you think we can come up with solutions for you? You're the expert. You're the one who should actually have the solutions. So come to us with the solutions and we'll see how what we can work on collectively. And that's one of the gripes I would have with industry over the last few years. I hear all the whinges and moans and groans. Government isn't interested, quite frankly. Bring us solutions. What are you suggesting as a solution? Then can we work on the solutions to make them work for both of us? So a wise person would say, well, knowing Going back to what Alistair Campbell said to you of wider access, social inclusion, sustainability. Yeah. If you know that there is three tick yeah. boxes, tick his boxes. Exactly. I'm saying is so you, you work out, you know, the government, what, you know, what are their objective, you know, what are their key things at the moment? Is it getting employment up or is it getting inflation down or getting growth kickstarted in the economy or whatever? And you've got to you know, work on their solutions and roll their solutions into what they can do for you, mm-hmm. if I could put it in those terms, mm-hmm. with a proven case to show that if they do do this and do do that, you know, the returning tax take will be more than, and that's why I see some of these nonsense stories about, you know, doing this and the loss of tax take and, you know, why, you know, reduce VAT and it'll solve everything. I can tell you the tax take on VAT is enormous. And if you start reducing VAT by 5%, whatever, the amount you lose, the Treasury will never recover. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're not in a stage at the moment where we've got spare money so the Treasury can afford to mm-hmm. 
give away money. So don't spout out stories about we must reduce VAT or this, that, and the other, because the climate's wrong. So you've got to look at things that tick the government box, but then will tick your box as well. That is what the skill of leaders in industry should be about, matching up the two and the same, you know, if we're going to get a change of government next year, which, you know, looks more than likely, we've got to start analysing, you know, what are the key objectives of possibly an incoming Labour government, what will tick their boxes, so let's start looking at some policies that we can hook up with them that might tick their boxes, but then they can do something for us. Of your wide uh, working experience, what would you put down as your biggest achievement? Because I appreciate that you've been walking uh, a tightrope when it comes to uh, government, but it sounds like you're very good at it. But what would you put down as your biggest? I would say two things. One, I've just touched upon and one we haven't yet touched upon. One is I really was quite, I really was delighted with the role I played post, you know, during the foot and mouth thing. I mean, I'd, I'd only been in the job a couple of years, so it's like being almost thrown in at the deep end. I mean, that really was quite a serious crisis for, you know, we had whole business, we had whole areas of businesses you know, the West Country, most of Wales, the whole of the North West, parts of Scotland, which were just closed. So to actually get, you know, I remember Alistair Campbell saying to me, one thing you've achieved during Foot and Mouth, because there's a daily government brief that sort of covers all the various issues and sections, and he produced it, and it was sent around to all government departments and people in government and civil servants, he said, you know, you've, you've made tourism and hospitality almost top of the agenda every day by beating on about how important tourism is, particularly in rural and regional areas. Mm-hmm. You know, tourism is the business. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, okay, London was a, a particular problem, but actually in rural areas, if tourism and hospitality is closed down, there is nothing else. Mm-hmm. And I brought that so that's when I was really pleased that we got tourism and hospitality top of the agenda and we got it recognised of the importance it is to local, rural, regional businesses. And it was interesting when we had a secondary burst of foot and mouth in about 2009, very small outbreak. I think one of the very first phone calls I got was from David Cameron, direct saying, can you give me a brief on what it means for the sector, how important it is, what the government should be doing, what lines of attack should I do in the House of Commons, X, Y, Z. So I think that was really quite an achievement in a way. And one of the, you know, I got lots of changes through as a result of that. And it was done through things called treasury rules. So for example, if you could prove that your business was reduced by 25% in any month as a result of something like this would happen, you could actually defray from paying your VAT, your income tax, corporation tax, national insurance, gas, electricity, all those things could be defrayed from being paid and you could schedule them over two or three years going forward. Because I I remember explaining to um, the Treasury and Gordon Brown in very simple words, 
how a hospitality business worked and how the cash flow worked and how important VAT was. You know, if you'd be paying, you know, 20% of your turnover out in VAT, it's a big cash flow item. Mm-hmm. So to be able to defer all those items for a two or three year period was a big achievement and we put that through as a result. So I felt that was a very big success. So after that, the government always understood whether it was bombs in London or terrorism or foot and mouth or whatever, how critical tourism and hospitality was, particularly to regional rural businesses. The second one I was really most proud of was the Olympic Games. People don't realize how critical our sector was to us winning the Olympic Games. And I'll tell you why. I was approached, um, we put in, when I was at DCMS, we put in a very quick bid for the World Cup football. I remember Alistair Campbell rang me up about putting in a bid via DCMS. We did a bid in about a week and it was hopeless and it got nowhere. So Teresa, uh, sorry, uh, Tessa Jowell particularly was very keen with Ken Livingstone, the mayor, that London should put in a bid for the Olympic Games in 2012. And they came along to me and said, essentially, would you work with us? Because obviously hotels and hospitality would be a very key part of the bid. And I said, well, give me a couple of weeks to whatever. So I got all the senior players together, the managing directors of the 15 biggest companies. And I said, do we want to support this bid? Do we want to be in it together? Or do we just sort of sort of put it to one side? And I said, my view is we either all do it together or not at all. And I managed to persuade the whole of the industry, the hotel sector, that they would do it together on the same contract. Same, same room rent. Same conditions. Okay. Everything. So there'd be no competitive advantage. We would just, whatever rooms they wanted. And, they, and what was interesting was from the bid, I think the original requirement was for something like 25,000 bedrooms, which was quite a lot. But we actually put up 40,000 rooms. And the reason we did that was because our major competitors were Paris and Madrid, and they only had about 10,000 rooms each at the time. And the way the IOC makes money is actually buying the bedrooms at a set price and then selling them on to all the corporate sponsors and corporate people. We were able to put up 40,000 rooms under one contract, same conditions. Big money for them. Big money for them. And that was one of the key deciding factors. Never been said publicly too much. Because, and, and, you know, Blair did a great job when he went out, out, out to um, when the decision was made in the Far East. And I know that Seb Coe did a great job and I worked with Seb on it. But Seb afterwards said to me, he said, he was, he was very good. We had a couple of dinners and in public he said, look, you really ought to be very proud of yourself because it was the hotel sector particularly and what you did put us in a very, very strong position. Because at the end of the day, Comes down to comes, comes down to money. Comes, comes down to they money. May not, they may not say it in public, That's but I can tell you in private. And I felt that was that was some achievement to be able to say, well, we got the games here. And of course, when they came here, 
then everyone had to play their part, and I think the hospitality side played its part. Whether it was the caterers providing the catering to the athletes' village, you know, so you know, I, you know, so all the big catering companies got contracts out of it. Restaurants did extremely well, and of course the hotels did pretty well because it wasn't just the forty thousand rooms they sold. By that time, they built more hotel capacity, and you know, the ones that weren't part of that forty thousand contract, they sold at a much higher price. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's something to be really proud of. So we, all, I think, we, uh, all, we actually uh, all did well over it. And I think, yeah. I think Britain and London came out of the Olympic Games as a job well done. Yes. And I think our sector, hospitality and tourism, can say job well done. And I can also tell you uh, one of the reasons for supporting it was when you looked at the tourism figures for the next three or four years, they went up and up and up and up. As a long tail. Yeah, it was a very long tail because what people had seen on television yeah. and the stories that people took back to say what a great place London was. Because it wasn't just London. You know, it was, you know, sailing down at Weymouth, um, you know, stuff up in Scotland, whole range, you know, right across the country. So, in fact, there was that impact right across the country. So, I, I was very proud of that. Great. And rightly so. Rightly so. And it was a I've, great experience. I mean, you know, there's me starting off as a, you know, a commie chef in Ford Motor Company. And you'd gone right through your garden merchant experience. We'd done the MBO and then with the Sodexo experience, then be the government advisor, then, you know, the British Hospitality Association for 10 years. You know, it, a, a very lucky career to have all those experiences. Fantastic. I, I've two questions for you. Uh, firstly, Knowing what you know now and with your experience of having worked extensively within the food service and hospitality sector, um, if you're working in it now, what do you think you would do differently? Or if you were to start a business in it now, what would you think are the major changes that would need to be in place? I think I, I recognise that I, I, was, I would never have been and never am an entrepreneur. I've always worked in extremely large companies, and there's a difference between what I term management skills and communication skills and entrepreneurial skills. What always interested me was scale, size, you know, and that's why I've only ever worked in giant companies. And that fascinated me, you know, these large companies, their ability to do things, and you harness that, you know, that scale to achieve great things. And it's about you know, people skills, it's about investment skills, it's about marketing skills, but that's management. And that's the bit that's always fascinated me as opposed to being an entrepreneur. So if I had my life again, would I want to form my own business, do my own thing? No, I would always want to be in large scale companies. And quite frankly, in hospitality, I think hospitality, it's been good by me. I've enjoyed it all the time. Why would I change for something you enjoy? Yeah. I always, when I give career advice to people, I always say, find something you enjoy because you're going to spend a long time doing it. So make sure you enjoy. I mean, I was very lucky. You know, I, I did my first year with Gardner Merchant in 1967. That was the, just the year after John Gardner, Peter Merchant merged, 67. 
I worked after I left university, I worked continuously, and I only just finished work entirely last year. Never been unemployed, never had time off. You know, very fortunate. And the industry has given me an enormous range of things to do. You don't just have to be a chef. You don't just have to be a salesman or marketeer or cook or whatever, you know. You do everything. Mm. You get a whole range of things and you work with interesting people mm. and you're providing a service and people give you, you know, I, me- I remember in my very early days, I think it was one of my lectures at college, really bright guy, Richard Kotas, he said, you're very fortunate in hospitality, food service, catering. It's one of the very few industries where you buy the food in the morning, you do something with it in the kitchen, you serve it at lunchtime, you collect the money, and you do your P&L at 2.30, end of the day. So your whole business cycle is in one day, and you know how you've done. You know whether you've made any money, and you know whether your guests are satisfied. Whereas you think of some other industries, maybe the oil industry at the other extreme, where you sort of go prospecting for where there might be oil, and it might be five years down the track, ten years down the track, before you start bringing oil ashore. Mm -hmm. Isn't it wonderful that you can have an industry where you know on the day how successful you've been? Yeah. And I've always borne that that in mind, that is a, a great industry to be in, that sort of short cycle, quick cycle, but you know how you're doing and you get that feedback from the customer immediately immediately, and you know positive feedback and have you made some money. Yeah. And if you haven't made some money, well, you can do something about it for the next day. If yeah. the customer wasn't happy, you can do something about it for the next day. Mm-hmm. That's a great business to be in, quite frankly. And, and, and a business to have the range of opportunities it has for youngsters. You know, we are getting a better range of custom of, of, of people joining the industry. I've just got to think we've got to work harder at getting quality people into the industry, pay them properly, but then manage them and take care of them properly as well. These are, you know, scarce resources. Everyone wants them. Mm-hmm. Look after them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the way you look after your car at home. Okay, you know, take care of it. And so the the last question that I have, because the, the what you've said so far makes so much sense, and I think that uh, our listeners will get a lot of uh, very good nuggets out of what you're saying, because uh, a lot of it's tying in with the biggest problem, which is at the moment, which is around the staffing side is, of things that, that is, and the new entrants coming that, into that it. That is the issue. It's, it's, it's not even sort of 70, 80%. It's 100% of the issue. If you don't have the right people, you won't have a business. You know, AI is a wonderful thing. Modern technology is a wonderful thing. IT is a wonderful thing. These are all tools that help you. But I can tell you, in hospitality, you will always need people, and it's the people that make the difference between an also business and a great business. Mm -hmm. So my top three that I was looking for, sounds like to you, is a top one of the top three challenges facing. If you don't get that one right, 
forget it. All the rest. I mean, I'm not saying other issues aren't important, you know, environmental issues, sustainability issues, all those other things. Of course, they're important things to do. But you've got to have a business in the first place to, to be able to do those things. And if you don't get the people thing right, you won't have a business. And there are good examples out there of hotels, restaurants, catering companies. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine the other week, and I keep in touch with lots of them. He's got a nice business in Essex. I won't mention the name, but it's four or five hotels, two or three restaurants and whatever. All his staff are drawn from the local area. He has extraordinary low turnover. He has very, very close relationships with the local schools and the local college. And he looks after his people and develops them. That's what it's about. I'm not saying there aren't particular problems. You know, London is a good example where you've got extreme problems because of cost of housing and all the rest of it. But having said that, you've got many upsides in London. You know, the rate that hoteliers can command on Park Lane for their hotels is extraordinary. You know, on average, hotels on Park Lane, 30% of turnover drops to the bottom line as profit. Now, is that right? Mm -hmm. Surely more should be spent on the staff to make the capital work. That's the point I'm making. We've got the balance wrong between capital and people and what we're investing in people. So the example of your friend in in uh, Essex, I think you said, yeah. what's what's his secret sauce? Well, because he's developed the relationship with schools. He's developed the relationship with local colleges. He goes into the schools and the colleges. He sends staff in on a regular basis to make contact. He finds jobs for people in the holidays when they want to get their first experiences. So when they leave school or college, they come to him for a job. And when they come to him for a job, he then gives them as much training as he can to give them the skills to do the job and treats them well. You know, this is what the this is what good management is about: treating people well. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, because I, I know it sounds pretty basic, but what I'm saying is there are good businesses out there doing the right things. I mean, sometimes it's a little sad, and I'm sure when you were talking to Gary Hawkes, he talked about the investment we made in a place called Kenley, a training centre. We were the first to set up this training centre in, what, 1980, 88, 89, I think it was. And we actually bought this house in Surrey, and it was a training centre. And every member of the company's management, up to 6,000 people, went through Kenley, being trained. This is what you do as a unit manager. This is what you do as a district manager. This is what your job is, so that, you know, in contract food service, for example, you know, if you were selling to a new client, your opening gambit would always be, we will provide you with trained staff. Well, you're hardly going to say we'll provide you with untrained staff, but everyone said it. What we were able to do at Kenley was bring clients down and actually show Proof. them the Proof. training they were having. Mm -hmm. and, that, and of course, the morale that gave all the staff as well See, even today, when I go around the country, because one of my jobs when I was down at Kenley with Gary was every week I would go and speak to them for half an hour. 
I get hotel managers, retired people coming up to me. Mr. Cotton, you won't remember me. I came to Kenley on a training course and you spoke. We, we mentioned long tails already. And that's hundreds of people who've done that, and particularly when I was at the BHA and I was going around the country meeting, because I used to go to every regional meeting, which meant that I went to 25 regional meetings a year to see regional hoteliers. The number of small regional hoteliers from North Wales or Mid Wales or Northern Ireland or whatever would come up to me, you won't remember me, Mr. Cotton, but I was in Gardner Merchant, came to Kenley on the training centre, and you spoke. That's amazing. Fantastic. That's fantastic. And that was their training. That's and fantastic. that's what we did then, and all that ended. So, so but, we haven't hardly made any progress, have we? But there's uh, what you've uh, said there um, is really good. So I'm, what I'm going to do is uh, there's a point, a very important point here I want to summarise uh, with based on what you said on of your 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 friend in the hotel in Essex who has uh, who doesn't have the the, the level of staffing problems that a lot of other businesses yeah. have because we mentioned a point earlier on uh, with regard sustainability and you said that there's two roles of sustainability one is with the leadership role that's where you have waste you have the customer expectations and not to get too far ahead and then the second was the listening role which when it comes to staff suppliers but also the community and that that community part of it is a piece that tends to be missing nowadays from a lot of businesses very much and and one of the things i think i i raised when i was doing the foot and mouth work with the government and they should have learned, as it were, again, it's been re-established during the COVID problems of two or three years, is the role that the hospitality tourism sector plays in community relations. You know, the coffee shop, the local coffee shop by the station, the tea shop where people meet. You know, those, our sector has a really important role to play in community relations. You know, not not you know, not just you know. I mean, I think it's a, we all know you know, and people joke about oh, the pub is the meeting place for the community. Well, I tell you, it's not the pub; it's the hospitality sector. You know, whether it's beef eater, the harvester, whether it's the coffee shop at the station, whether it's the morning tea shop or whatever, we have a very big role to play in community relations as well, in terms of bringing community together, where people meet and whatever. And that's where you can actually do a lot of this listening as well to what customers are talking about, what they're saying, what they're talking about and what they think you should be doing. You know, sometimes you should listen to them as to what you should be doing. Mm. You know, how far do you go with fair trade coffee or, you know, products from Africa or, or South America? You know, is what is the balance between, you know, using fair trade coffee from South America and trying to do good with helping people with low levels of wages against the cost of flying stuff, mm-hmm. you know, or should we be using something local? Mm-hmm. You know, there are interesting thoughts there and customers do actually have views and opinions. It certainly is. And I, I don't think it's a right or wrong, mm-hmm. but it is a listening and getting the balance right. I think, Bob, you've been very uh, generous with your time. I think that there's there's an an enormous amount of what you 
what you've said, I think, will make perfect sense. It has to me, and I know it will to our listeners. Um, but thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been very, very interesting. And you're uh, one of the easiest people in the world to have a conversation with. Oh. And you can tell if you didn't have a past in communications, I'd be suggesting that you have a future in one. Uh, so, <laughs> well, <laughs> Such I, is the clarity that you come across with. So I, thank I, you. I, I, was, I, I, I always remember um, one of the few tributes I got was... Um, when I finished with Garden Merchants today, so um, I formed a fairly close relation because in in the in, in sort of for quite a while my my PR agent was a company called Burston Marstella. Burston Marstella, young group, kind of giant group. But I was fairly close to the chairman, an elderly gentleman who was very well known in the industry. And I remember him once saying to Gary Hall, You're extremely fortunate, Gary, because Bob Cotton is actually the best natural PR communicator I have come across. He understands and sees messaging very well. Great. Which is what it's about actually when you're communicating is, particularly in PR terms, is getting the messaging right. And I, I must admit in what my last year there running PR and communications, we actually won three awards of the PR awards. I was the one who came up with the idea of having really interesting photographs of things going on in the business and using the photographs to sell the business. So for instance, um, we had one of Henley, where people were putting on their bow ties, 10 waiters, or putting on their bow ties before they started service. We had Wimbledon with the strawberries. Uh, we had um, Farnborough Air Show with a chef sitting on a typhoon. And I, I got a very good photographer who I knew privately. He took these pictures. And I got to the stage where every Saturday, there would be one of our pictures right across the top pages of all the papers. And what you learned was that the picture was what mattered. And then they used to come to me and say, what caption would you like? And then let me write the capture. So it would be Gardner Merchant providing the catering at Wimbledon today, or Gardner Merchant providing the racing and catering at Ascot. So of course we did Ascot and Henley and Wimbledon. So throughout the whole season, every week, we had these pictures. Great. And I was the first to do it. Pictures tells a thousand words. Yeah, but the key was um, allowing you then to put your own messaging underneath. Yeah. And the picture cost us 100 quid. So I was getting this sort of half page. I remember one week, we literally had Express, Mail, Times, Telegraph, Independent, Sun and Mirror. Same picture in every paper across the top. And with different captions underneath. Goldust. For a hundred quid. Goldust. And you got all the awards. And that was the first time people yeah. had used photography in that way. Great. But it's things like that. It's, I've always said to people, use your brain. Yeah. Now, there's lots of learnings in what you say, Bob. And yeah. That's, thank that's you. what it's about. It's, you know, getting ahead of the competition is always about using your brain. Yeah. You know, because there'll always be demand for hospitality services. People always want to eat out. They always want to go on a holiday. People have to eat at work. If you're the best at what you do, there's a business for you. 
Just make sure you're the best at what you do, and then you've got a very good business. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Bob. That was Food Service Matters. Warmest thanks to my guest, Bob Cotton, for giving us the opportunity to hear his thought-provoking views on how businesses and the government can work together in finding solutions to the industry's greatest challenges. If you'd like to continue the conversation on one of the topics that Bob talked about, leave us a comment below. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and watch out for coming installments. You've been listening to me, Patrick McDermott, on Food Service Matters, the podcast where we explore the challenges and opportunities facing the food service industry today.